The rule of banks was if you could get a mortgage and a checking account, you had a client for life, that that, that person was going to be your customer forever. Um, and that's a huge profit line for banks. If we gave somebody a 30-year mortgage and you knew that that mortgage was theirs for 30 years and you would be able to layer additional second loans on top of it, that you would be able to use that equity to purchase your, your cars, to pay for colleges, to pay for other things because you were actually paying it down and creating equity, the value of the bank skyrockets to the lender, to the borrower. The, the borrower suddenly has a real invested partnership with a bank. And that's a client for life. That's, that is what the financial services industry needs. I think that's what we as mortgage, as, you know, sellers of houses need is, are people who can move and are not going to be rocked in their, you know, because somebody got a divorce and had to sell a house and now their housing prices went up fourfold. Hey, this is Jim Duncan with Nest Realty. This week on Sweat the Details, Jim, Jonathan, and Keith talk about rate locks, predictions, fear mitigation, transferable mortgages, equity, borrowers flexibility, listing agents marketing responsibilities, and a bit more. We hope you enjoy. Jonathan, Keith, how are y'all doing? Uh, we're we're remote. We're doing we're doing this pod remote. We 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 were able to switch back to uh, in person and. Um, but we don't have an office right now, so we have to do it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm good. How it's like you? 2021 all over again. All over again. Turn, turn back the clock. <laughs> well, we're looking at the housing market today. Um, you know, th- some of the numbers we've seen recently have been that uh, prices are stable to up in many parts of the country. Uh, contracts and sales are are down uh, year over year. And we, at least Keith and I, I know we got the email you probably did to Jonathan about a credit union that's offering a, a, a rate lock of a year. Will that sort of thing give confidence to buyers to, to jump back in? I mean, is that one of the things that might spur confidence and, and someone be able to say, hey, now we can look at buying a house now? I, I, I got to say, Jim, I mean, I got that email and I immediately sent it to you guys because I was just flabbergasted by it. I, I think... There's something reassuring from the buyer end of knowing exactly what they're in for. And from my business side, it's terrifying to think that banks are willing to take a risk on a one-year lock. And it makes me wonder, number one, how overpriced that product might be in order to to be stable enough to handle it. Um, but secondarily, how, you know, we've been talking in in the last couple of pods about the general consensus of movement in a, in a downward direction of interest rates and how confident these banks have to be that we are going to be seeing lower rates over the next three, six, nine, 12 months that they're willing to offer a 12 month lock and try and get buyers to commit to a higher price. I, I find it to be a fascinating, fascinating move. Too many, too many different ways to look at it. Yeah. From my perspective, I know we've been talking about rates dropping for six months now and, I came to the conclusion, at least in my head, a couple of weeks ago, I can't, you know, we can't keep waiting for that to happen. We've got to get proactive and kind of push forward. And this is some conversations we've been having with our, with our agents about it. So like, when are the rates really going to drop? Are they really going to drop? Um, but it actually, when I saw this come through, you know, my inbox, when you forwarded it, Keith, um, it did make me feel better that this bank is betting, right? They're, they're betting pretty big yeah. that, uh, that rates are dropping. So um it's nice to hear that, but I, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if something like that really is going to jumpstart the market. I think it might make 
you know, existing buyers, like buyers that are, you know, ready to do something. It makes them, might make them feel a little better. Um, but I'm not sure if it's going to really kind of get people off the sidelines. No, but I think if, if it mitigates one of the fears that they have, you know, I, again, making this number up, maybe five, seven, eight percent of the buyers will feel that more confidence to be able to move forward and say, oh, we, we, have, we know we can do this and we can plan out to buy in six or seven months because we've locked in. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's, it's a little thing, incremental uh, positivity, I think. Yeah. I mean, I will say there's an interesting hedge that's out there, right? I mean, if I went and applied for a mortgage for a half a million dollars right now and sat on it for a year because I don't have any idea that I want to move, don't want to move, but if suddenly there's a spike in rates and I've got a locked rate that no one else has access to, I mean, there's an interesting hedge option, right? I mean, and I'm sure there's a fee. I didn't read the details on it, but um, it, it does it does make you wonder what other people are going to take advantage of it. I mean, there's I had a – what's that? So there's always a fee. <laughs> yeah, there is. <laughs> there's nothing nothing for free. Well, what are some thoughts – what are some ideas you all have to – to, to truly jumpstart the market, to, to get sellers to sell and, and buyers to buy? I mean, what's, what's a thing that, we, that could be crafted out of proverbial thin air to, to, to bring people off the sidelines? You know, I, 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 look at, I look at that rate lock and say, like, you know, re, to reiterate what I said is, it may get a couple buyers off, but do we really, and I know we probably do, do we really need more of those type of buyers? I think the buyers that we need are the ones that uh, have a home to sell. Right. So that that's the big question is like, how do you jumpstart people to sell their house so you can start the domino effect? Um, and there was an interesting press release that I saw this week that we talked about. There's a company called Rome, um, which they just did a fundraise. It wasn't a huge raise. Uh, it was about a million bucks, um, which I guess is a lot of money, <laughs> but it seems like when you're talking like mortgage for this tech, kind of industry, it's not right. tech world, it's not that, that much money, but um, basically what they're doing is coming up with a way to connect buyers with sellers who have an assumable mortgage. And what, you know, uh, what they said is a third of the mortgages in the U S are assumable. Essentially like FHA and VA loans are by the letter of the law, um, can be assumed. Um, so, so they're what they're trying to do is is connect buyers and and uh, with 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 sellers that have an assumable assumable mortgage, which is an interesting proposition. Um, and they had some pretty big backers behind it. Um, and look, that that's an interesting opportunity to jumpstart the market. I mean, if you can seek out and find a, a mortgage at four, four and a half, or five, or you know something lower than seven, seven and a half. I think that benefits both, you know, both sides uh, because it, it allows you to, to one afford a house and, and gives the incentive for the seller to, to find something else. Yeah, I, I think my my issue with that is I don't think anybody picks the house because of the mortgage rate. I do think that when you are marketing a home, any any listing agent out there is a fool for not investigating what the mortgage is that their seller has right now, and that if they have the ability. To, to create an assumable mortgage, they should be marketing the heck out of it and talking about it. Um, there are issues with assumptions, no question about it. We can talk about that. But um, I think nobody, I can't imagine going online and saying, I want to move to Virginia 
show me all the assumable mortgages and selecting a house from that list. It could be a place to start though. I mean, you know, I, I think people, what's the, what's the saying is, is, you know, you want to buy a home that, that has 80% of, of what you're looking for. Um, so no home is perfect. And, but maybe if you say, gosh, if I could get a two and a half or three and a half percent rate, I might not care quite as much about sure. X, Y, or Z features. Um, I'll, I'll take that and I'll, I'll be saving, you know, five, six, seven hundred dollars a month. So it is an interesting, you know, it, it, an interesting kind of niche place to start. And maybe, you know, in the long run, it, it's not a niche. Um, I think one of the, Keith, what you were saying, one of the very interesting things to me is if, something like this starts to become more mainstream. Um, you know, there, there's a million different aspects of a home that we use to determine what the value is. And this is like the million and first aspect. If you're looking at like a, an example of you've got a, let's say you've got two homes that are next to each other that are literally identical, same builder, same everything, but one of them has an assumable mortgage at 3% and the other, you got to go on the market and pay 7.18%. That value of that house with an assumable mortgage is huge. And so you can charge a premium for it. And so- If you market it correctly, yes. If you market and I, it. I would, I would say, I mean, look back just the last couple of, of episodes we've talked about with this and in our conversation with Cynthia Adams, the the reality is a, a home, a high-performing home that reduces your- monthly expenses should transfer to a higher value, right? But it has to be marketed correctly. Same thing with the assumable mortgage. If you if you create a contract and then realize the benefit, then you're not going to be able to, you know, the seller is not benefiting from it. It's got to be something that's that's known up front and that the, um, the buyer's got to be in on. Well, I mean, to, to a quick tangent for a second is, I mean, I think this is an opportunity to talk about what listing agents and listing brokers need to do is we're doing more work now to prep the homes to identify that value. You know, I, I think yeah. that it's something that, um, you know, I'm looking at a property in the next few weeks that having to establish what the current zoning is, and what the likely zoning is going to be and having that conversation about today's value and perceived value in the future is something that, you know, that was a change that wasn't in place, you know, three years ago, but also it's when properties used to sell, immediately for for whatever value you put on it, you didn't have to do that kind of legwork. So I think that we're entering a world where we're going to all have to be better at what we do as we start to market these properties and help the sellers identify that value and find out what those differentiating things are, like an assumable mortgage or you know the type of zoning or what have you. I think it's going to be a very different world, which is great, I think. Well, I think the other thing that's fascinating is, is that we act like the market that we're in today was created in the last 60 days and that we can now have a control, you know, the the control arm to change it. The reality is what we're dealing with right now is is a result of a interest rate environment that's been falling since 1991, 1990, really, uh, or before that, I guess. That was really when I started tracking it. Um, but we're talking about 30 years of decreasing mortgages, and now we're into a problem where sellers can't get out of it. If we had been addressing this for the last 30 years and had been providing owners an opportunity to create 
a mortgage that can move, a a something that provides stability and takes the volatility out of the ownership equation. The fact that we're looking at people who have 3% mortgages and telling them they're going to be at seven if they buy a new house, that's volatility that, that buyers slash sellers, because they are the same people, just can't can't handle. Well, is I mean, this... Is this an opportunity for something like the the home buyer tax credit that we had, you know, in, in coming out of the crash, you know, for you know something like that? That's a short term fix. That's a that's a one year fix, right? I mean, that's not that's not something sustainable, and it's not something that actually changes the equation. It's not a disruptable factor. It's I'm saying a home simply, seller. I'm saying a home seller tax credit. If you if you incentivize that seller to get to to put their home on the market and look somewhere else, might negate obviously not financially the full negation. But if it helps them get over that first hurdle of, you know, yeah, so whatever Lauren that June, is, we 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 heard Lawrence June speak in Charlottesville last week or two weeks ago, um, and he brought up that there is a proposal being floated. It's not a bill that's been introduced, but it's an idea that's being discussed in Washington to um, increase the capital gains, uh, ca- the the limit for capital gains because it's been how many years? Do you say it's been twenty five years? Like I think it was in, since like 1998, um, it has not changed as to what the exemption is for capital gains tax, and so there's this this push thinking that people will suddenly be willing to sell their houses. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. I don't think there's I don't think there's more than you know a couple thousand people in this country who are looking at their homes saying, I don't want to sell because I might have to pay the capital gains ta- long term capital gains tax rate on an amount over a half a million dollars in profit in my home. It's just, that's just not going to, that's not going to change anything for the buyer, the average buyer seller might change it for the Palm beach mansions might change it for the 535 politicians who are going to vote for it, but it's not going to change it for the everyday American. It doesn't change anything. I mean, that was a thing that, you know, that the capital gains was something that, that we were having this, I vividly remember the conversation with people, my, take a break for a sec, Dave, because my hands are just in the middle of everything. Um, you know, I think that the, the capital gains conversation is something that I vividly remember during the first run-up of my career many years ago, is that sellers coming to us would say, okay, well, we need to hold on to this property for 25 months or whatever whatever that that threshold was, three years, three out of five years, I think, Yeah. Um, you know, for 37 months so that we, we don't have to deal with capital gains. So I think, it, again, it's there's no – you know, unicorn or magic bullet, whatever you want to call it, is going to get people out of it. But I think incremental things that churn some some positivity, I think, is is a big thing. Even if it's a, a tiny thing like a, the capital gains tax, which gets political points and will help some people. Yeah, it's it, it's not it's not going to get people off the sidelines, but it's something that might get four. The only thing that I think would change that is if you change who it is that's getting the exemption, how much the exemption is, and and where what it is that's the trigger. So if you were to say to investors, or really to anybody, if you transfer a home to a primary residence, a first-time home buyer, or to a to someone who only owns one property, would be their one property, then you're tax-free on the capital gains. Yeah, you'd have renters. You'd have renter investors flipping those properties very quickly. You, they would recognize the value, whether short or long-term capital gains. We well, could get more homes into the primary housing market. And I think that's one of the things that's on the table, at least conversationally, is is if you have a mom and pop type investor who has a few properties and they sell one of those to a first-time home buyer. I mean, sure. 
that 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 would get so I would see that as as an incentive for a home as an investor owner to divest themselves and then sell it to a first time home buyer. But that would you know, again yes. that's and that that you know the the challenge is would they you know would they be looking at a 1031 otherwise? So I think it's baby steps. There's yeah. no, there's no there's no big thing. The, you know, you're right. These are all kind of incremental aspects, but you know, you look at and you, I hear these statistics that housing and industries tied to housing are a third of the GDP for the US. So yeah housing renovations, like everything, there's so much that's tied to housing. The fact that right now we've got, uh, you know, millions of homeowners that don't want to sell and don't want to move. Jim, you're right. Like incremental changes do make a difference. And I don't think any of us want a, a, a switch to be flipped tomorrow that like opens the floodgates where every seller wants to sell, right? It's got to be some small changes over the course of time, um, hopefully soon. Um, and hopefully it's not something that's like a Snickers bar that just kind of gives a quick high. And then all of a sudden we've got a low from it. And I think that was Jim, what you were referring to that, that home buyer tax credit right after the crash. I mean, that was a little bit, uh, and I actually want to maybe go back and do some research to see if, if the economists actually thought that that worked hindsight 2020, but that was, a you know, I remember being, in our office, and these were the early days, in our office at no lie, like 11 o'clock at night, and there was three other agents in there writing contracts because the deadline yep. was midnight. And there were sellers and buyers that were scrambling to get these contracts done um, by by midnight. So yeah, it, I mean, I guess to a certain extent it, it worked. Um, but here we are, here we are now like <laughs> looking for another, uh, you know, boost from the government to to get things rocking and rolling again. But you know, but but still we go back 2005 I think was the peak home ownership rate in America, somewhere in that that time period. It was close to 70%. We're back down below, you know, 64 65 right now. China's got a 95% home ownership rate. That's crazy. I mean, that's that's the difference between, you know, a making I mean, part of this, again, I, I go back to this is a 30-year problem we've created, but this goes back to the regulations around uh, land development. This goes back to the cost of of putting a new rooftop in the market. Um, we can't do it affordably for the most Americans, and that's why we're, we're kind of looking at crazy low ownership rates. That's why we're looking at so many sellers not wanting to sell. That's why, I mean, it all kind of tumbles together. We've got to find a way to make this a, a less volatile market where we are not wondering what does it look like in six months? Are we going to have a market moving? And that's where, that's the discussion we've been having for the last two years. What, what are, real quickly, what are, what are the repercussions? That, let's just say that there is a, a tax credit for um, investors to sell to first-time home buyers that are going to be owner occupants. Our, across the U.S., single-family rentals pr price rental pricing has just skyrocketed. They are they are in such high demand. I remember in Charlottesville 10 years ago, not even six, seven years ago, where a $3,000 single family rental was like my eye, I, my eyes got as wide as, you know, watermelons. I couldn't believe somebody was paying $3,000 a month for a rental. And now I see these fives and $6,000 rentals that are out there. Um, and so, the, the, you know, the question is what happens to if, if all of a sudden, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100,000 
single family rentals come off the market, does that just boost the the price of of rental housing even even more? You know, in apartments, well, the, there's there's an oncoming flood of apartments. Well, the question um, the question be, though, and in what I have no idea, I'm just going to throw a question now that again back to your question is that do we have any idea what percentage of families that are renting single family homes are people who would have bought them if they were available versus people who are in transient positions where they need to be in rentals and therefore that's what's increasing. I, I don't know the answer. I think I think you probably would find that if we could get you know hundreds of thousands of Americans out of rentals and into home ownership, I think your rental rates would stay flat because I don't think that you'd, you'd find that there is much demand. I, mean, I think that's the issue. I think there's a lot of demand because they can't find the houses to buy. Good point. Yeah, good point. I mean, there are there are markets. You know, I think we've probably all read the stories about single family home neighborhoods that are built to rent mm-hmm. because they are. You know, in the target market for that are people in various stages of life, whether they're young, starting a family, and they they're figuring out what their root where their roots are going to be, and then they go and buy a house. Or you have the people who are semi-retired, retired who don't want to. You know, they don't want to deal with homeownership. And I think that there's, you know, that's a whole nother segment of the market that I think that that's a segment that at least the latter part of that you kind of write off as a target market because they're not going to be home buyer. That, that buyer is not going to be a home buyer again, most likely. If they're in that, that phase of life where like, you know, we just want to live our lives and not have to, you know, clean the gutters. But I think you do target that, that subset that is, you know, they look at it as, as a, they come into it as a transitional phase. And those are the, those are buyers you can certainly target to try and get to consider home ownership. Yeah. If, if it becomes a affor- if it becomes viable and affordable. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to, we'll, I don't want to dwell on this topic too much. I think the other concern I have with that tax credit of targeting a very specific type of buyer, I mean, that is a fair housing violation potential fair housing violation all day, all day long. So, right. um, there, there's, there's some worries I have about that. Oh, sorry. You were willing to pay a lot more money, but I'm not going to sell to you. I'm going to sell that guy over there. Um, yeah, but as so, long as the federal government is advocating for the fair housing violation, Jonathan, it's fine. <laughs> that's, <laughs> true. That's what policy is all about. But uh, I think the big, you know, the, the, the question, as we continue down this topic of like, what's really going to jumpstart this, We've had this conversation a lot, and Keith, you know, t- talk about your idea for uh, for a transferable mortgage. Um, yeah, so I, I will say the transferable mortgage was actually the first time I ever heard it was in 1994. This is not something that's new to me or to the market or the ideas. It's just no one's ever come up with a way to actually pull it off. But um, I remember I worked with a guy named Jake Labella who was was out of Louisiana. He was a compliance officer in the mortgage world, and he started pitching this. And Jake's idea, or Jake's what he kind of pitched to me, was this idea of instead of getting a thirty-year mortgage and refinancing it every few years, or when you buy, you pay it off, you get a new thirty-year mortgage at a new rate. The idea is you borrow. You know, today you borrow three hundred fifty thousand dollars to buy your first home, and that's your thirty-year mortgage. And if you move. The balance of the mortgage moves with you. And this does a bunch of different things. Number one, it stabilizes your payment. It doesn't lock you into a house at all. It allows you to move much more fluidly um, because you're taking the balance of, of that mortgage with you 
and all you're doing now is you're applying for a second mortgage on top of it to kind of layer and, and to create the assets you need to purchase your larger home. But the big part is, is that the average U.S. homeowner pays off their loan in like eight years right now. And so you're paying off, um, you know, less than 10% of the mortgage in equity in those first eight years on most on a 6% loan. And so by giving you 30 years to actually pay it off, you land up into a period of the loan payments where you're actually putting away equity with every single, you know, your, your principal portion of your payment is getting larger and larger and larger. And so your homeowner's actually gaining. From the investor standpoint, it's a great deal because when they make a 30-year mortgage, like right now we've been talking about the spread between the 10-year and 30-year mortgages, are at an all-time high because investors don't know how long these loans are going to be out there. If we knew that our 30-year mortgage was actually a 30-year mortgage, then, and yes, you can still refinance it. So if markets go down, people can, can get into the lower piece. But the reality is investors now start getting a much higher confidence level that their, that their loans are going to be paid for a 30-year period. And people are invested in the long-term nature of that loan. I think it's just, it adds huge volume. Now, there, yeah, there are tons of why it doesn't work, right? The collateral needs to move. The there are periods of of time where sellers sell a property and then wait sixty days, ninety days to buy another one. And how do you handle that mortgage? And we need to work through that. But the reality is, back in ninety two, when I entered the mortgage market um, on the on the you know employee side, the rule of banks was if you could get a mortgage and a checking account, you had a client for life. That 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 person was going to be your customer forever. Um, and that's a huge profit line for banks. If we gave somebody a 30-year mortgage and you knew that that mortgage was theirs for 30 years and you would be able to layer additional second loans on top of it, that you would be able to use that equity to purchase your, your cars, to pay for colleges, to pay for other things because you were actually paying it down and creating equity, the value of the bank skyrockets to the lender, to the borrower. The, the borrower suddenly has a real invested partnership with a bank, and that's a client for life. That's, that is what the financial services industry needs. I think that's what we as mortgage, as you know, sellers of houses need, is, are people who can move and are not going to be rocked in their, you know, because somebody got a divorce and had to sell a house, and now their housing prices went up fourfold. That doesn't make yeah. sense. I'm, I'm having this vision in my mind when you talk about the bank client for life of my early days in college where in every corner there was somebody trying to get you to sign up for a bank account or a yeah. uh, credit, credit card, card. giving you like, you know, free this or a free blanket. Jonathan, my checking account that I hold right now was opened up somewhere around 1985. And I have gone through five different bank mergers and I've never closed that account because frankly, it's a pain in the butt to change, right? I opened my bank account the first week I was at UVA and there's been bank managers, but it's the same. <laughs> it's, it's, I haven't moved it yet because it is. My a, number, my number yeah. has changed because they've added digits on the end in the beginning to, you know, with each new merger. But the reality is those accounts, they are clients for life, right? I mean, otherwise, given the history of Wells Fargo, can you imagine how they'd be doing, you know, if everybody, if it was easy to move checking accounts? Yeah. So Keith, it sounds like you're you're this is an idea where Keith is getting a mortgage, not one two yeah. three Main Street, but Keith Correct. is being given a mortgage. Like I'm what, buying a thirty year note or a forty, and now you could do a forty year note, and it actually makes sense. 
Well, so the, the bank would need to figure out some you know algorithmic way other than, hey, I like you, to say at your stage of life, we will collateralize you know $400,000. Correct. Well, it still has to it still has to be tied to real property, right? You know, Either, and- well, you, I think you have to you have to basically say that when the loan is active, so think of it as a HELOC, right? You go get a loan, but it's not actually outstanding until you borrow money against it. And I think in this in this transferable concept, you're buying and you're instantly activating the loan, and you live in a house for ten years. You've got the loan, you're paying it off. When you sell the house, the the trust could then go back into basically like a 1031 intermediary type account where the bank is still holding the money for the 60 days until you close on your new home in Ohio. And you get to, you know, then it starts reworking again. Now you you either, when it's being held by the intermediary, by the trust account, you'd either have to continue paying your mortgage or interest rates or interest is going to accrue against the mortgage and your principal is going to go up, but that doesn't change the ability to then turn that asset into working capital again for you. Um, the collateralization, you always have to have an appraisal on any new property as you move it from collateral A to collateral B. Um, I would wager if we actually talked to somebody who legally understood why this has never happened, because none of the three of us have any idea, right? But I would wager that something has to do with transferring the money from collateralizing in state A to state B. Moving that money from Virginia to Ohio probably has significant repercussions and i but again i think there are ways to work through that they're they're known issues of what we're dealing with first why are you picking on ohio and second i the answer is the lobbyists in the banks i mean there's there i mean it's there's there's a reason why it hasn't happened yet but i like i mean i i don't i don't dislike the idea i like it enough to say um can you imagine the uh you know i'm just i'm making up rules right now for this transferable mortgage but can you imagine if you sold a house if you had like let's say 90 days to find a new property to tie it to otherwise you know it's a 1031 yeah it's like a 1031 it's like oh my gosh i got a three percent rate and if you're on day 86 and you haven't found a house you would just go buy whatever just because and then and then you know, maybe sell that, you know, a couple of weeks later. But, but, but what's the, wrong with that? But what's to the, the point earlier, anything's wrong with it. I just think it's really, behind, you talk about behind the scenes negotiating. If the seller had any idea that the buyer only had three days left to basically transfer yeah. his mortgage, you know, and, and a good real, a good buyer's agent would never tell the, the, the listing agent. Uh, definitely a nest agent would never do that. <laughs> but, um, but it would be super interesting behind the scenes if you know, you know. Yeah, I could see the email coming out uh, with within our Nest listserv of like, my buyer has to buy something in you know this area, and they've got three days. But back whatever you have. I mean, here's it. But think about the implications from the buyer standpoint, right? If you're a 55, 60 year old buyer and you're buying a property, this probably has no value in in the long term because you're not going to move multiple times. If You'll you may move some, but it's not going to be the the likelihood of the move is different. But if you're a 29, 32, 33 year old buyer who's about to have a first child or is having a second child or something, and you're looking at that first home, and you're thinking, how many properties will I go through? How many jobs will I move for? How many? And you're thinking, you know, the number of people who we talk to who are coming in for med school for UVA, right? Do I buy a home? Eh, I'm only going to be here four years. Is it worth it? But you know what? The interest rates are four and a half percent right now. My God, I should buy it just to get that first $300,000 of assets working for me. And then when I move to my fellowship, I'm going to be able to take it with me. 
that is an amazing opportunity. It opens up the 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 floodgates for buyers. It's it's a huge change in the way we we think about the real estate market. Yeah, and it reduces friction for selling too, right? I mean, this is a and I think it in, and it increases margins for investors. Think about if you are that thirty three year old buyer and you have an opportunity to get a you know the current loan rate back you know a number of years ago three and a half percent. Would you have paid four and a half if you knew that mortgage was transferable? Absolutely. That hundred basis point shift for the investor is amazing. I mean, like that's that totally changes everything. Well, I think we got an anyway. idea. We need to sell sell to some banks and some lobbyists and some politicians and um, people who are in different worlds than we are. Um, but I like the idea of you know transferring mortgages and making it a more more fluid and and uh, open market. I got See, a couple now, of I, now I want to. I say now I want to find Jake Lobello and figure out where he's working and, and let him know that I'm still thinking about uh, about what he pitched to me in 1995 or 92 or whatever year it was 94. Yeah. All right. Um, well, thanks, guys. I think we've uh, given the three of us a lot to think about, and hopefully our listeners as well. Um, I think we'll follow up on this one in a few months and just sort of see what we brainstormed and who we can get to talk about this and why it hasn't happened. Yeah. Interesting idea. Good talk. Well, thanks, y'all. See ya. Hey, this is the end again, and we thank you for listening. If you feel like it, please take 30 seconds to share this, rate us, and review us. If you don't feel like it, that's fine too. We still thank you for listening. Hope you listen next time.